Welcome to the Talk to Your Pharmacist podcast. We're dispensing stories of success from across the continuum of care. I'm your host, Hillary Blackburn. Thanks for joining us to learn from leaders throughout the pharmacy industry. This podcast is sponsored by TheraWorks Relief. Many of you get sore, achy legs from standing all day or get asked about painful foot and leg cramps. If so, you're going to want to hear about TheraWorks Relief, a clinically proven topical foam that prevents and relieves muscle cramps and soreness. Learn more at theraworksrelief.com. All right, so today we have a special guest on the Talk to Your Pharmacist podcast. She was the keynote speaker at APHA's annual meeting where about 5,000 pharmacists gave her a standing ovation. So excited to have Eileen McDar here with me today. Since starting her consultancy practice in 1980, Eileen has become known as a master facilitator, an award-winning author, and an internationally recognized keynoter and executive coach. She's the CEO, Chief Energy Officer of the Resiliency Group. And Eileen is the author of seven books, including her latest, Your Resiliency GPS, a guide for growing through life and work. And her book, Gifts from the Mountain, won the Ben Franklin Gold Award, from which she produced an award-winning training film. In 2019, Gurus International, a British-based provider of resources for leadership, communication, and sales training, also ranked her first of the world's top 30 communication gurus following a global survey of 22,000 business professionals. Such an honor to have you, Eileen. Welcome to the Talk to Your Pharmacist podcast. Thank you. I am delighted that you are doing this, and I know you're bringing a lot of good information to your colleagues around the globe. Well, it is a fun passion to share about great things happening in pharmacy and to be able to connect with awesome leaders in and out of the space and uh, talk about this very important topic that we are going to talk about, burnout and resiliency. So Eileen, now that our listeners have heard just a little about your background, maybe you can fill in any gaps from that intro or share a little bit about your personal life with us. Well, let's see. Um, I became interested in this whole topic of resiliency and burnout uh, some 30 years ago when I had moved from Florida to California. I had gone through a divorce. Um, I came with about mm, $1,500 and whatever fit in the back of a Camaro, which if you've ever seen the back of a Camaro, you know it's not much. And uh, uh, so my, my first job was working with actually um, a healthcare company that placed alcoholism treatment units in hospitals nationwide. Then I worked for a PR firm handling their multinational clients and got to the place within the first three years that if I ever wrote another press release, I was going to throw up. <laughs> so I said, I can't do this. And I had just married my most adorable, precious husband, adopted his three kids, so it was not the ideal time to quit a job, but I said, I can't do this anymore. And my bill is just incredibly wonderful and supportive. And that started me on the journey because I, I, I couldn't do what I was doing. It was, uh, it was eating a hole in my heart. So my first book was called Work for a Living and Still Be Free to Live. And as far as we can determine, it was the first book that ever looked at the topic of burnout 
along with crafting a resilient life, a life that is one that you want to lead. So it wasn't just about controlling the, the flames of burnout. It was really putting together a life. And over time, um, what I've realized, um, and actually my, my clients, my audiences tell me this, is that what resiliency is really all about is how do you manage your energy? Mm-hmm. And energy management has to do with what we think, what we feel, what we do. And if you're involved in a, in a, a job that eats your soul up, there is no energy there. That is interesting. And so I'm glad we're going to kind of keep on theme with uh, cultivating resiliency skills to control burnout, which is what uh, you shared with the audience at APHA's meeting in Seattle. Uh, so our you know listeners can, can hear more and learn more uh, from that. So, you know, tell a little bit more about why is this topic just so needed right now? Yeah, this is this is so fascinating, Hillary, and your timing couldn't be better because I'm actually in the in the middle of writing a proposal for another book that is going to put together that very thing about resiliency skills as a way of controlling burnout uh, that they're not that they're not independent, and all the research that is I mean it's constantly is constantly coming across my desk is that this is an epidemic. And it's an epidemic that is global. It is not related just to the healthcare professions, though, by golly days, it, it, it's huge in healthcare for not only for pharmacists, but for, for doctors, for nurses. I'm going to be with oncology nurses in, in two weeks. Um, and that's exactly what they want to talk about. And I think what it is, there's a couple things. Number one is that we have bought into the idea primarily in in the West, um, but also Japan is part of it too, that the idea of happiness is how much do I own and how much can I do? And I have to say, exhaustion is not a badge of honor, but we've treated it like that. One of the things that I'm also seeing is in the younger generation, the millennials, you know, they've got this, this notion that well, I have to get this, this this huge job. I have to keep work, 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 work. Um, or the flip side is they, is they said, I saw my parents uh, frizzle and die, and I don't want to do that. So there's some pushback about that. The other thing that I think has created this, frankly, is technology. And by technology, what I mean is that we are on all the time. We watch you walk across the college campus and the kids don't see each other. They don't even know where they're walking. They're so busy checking their text messages. You look at the people that go on. They can't stand if I'm not on Facebook or Instagram or whatever else. So we're constantly, constantly on. In fact, we no longer read. There was a wonderful article in the New York Times is now instead of really delving in and understanding, you know, issues, we scan because we've got too Mm. much coming to us. So one of our one of our challenges, and it's up to each individual, is to say, how do I create and put a boundary around this thing called technology so that I control it rather than it controlling me? Yeah, I love that. So that is helpful in sharing a little bit more about why it is an epidemic. Um, let's talk a little bit about resiliency. Um, and so... 
you know, I guess too, when we want to make sure we identify, you know, what does burnout look like? Uh, I think most people probably hopefully know what that is and and know that there are resources available kind of going into to you know what is resiliency what does that mean okay well first off i i like to talk was the title of that the presentation that i gave, gave for apha was cultivating resiliency skills and i purposely used the word cultivating first off it's an action verb ing it doesn't mean cultivated so very done signed sealed and delivered and if you think about cultivating a field, you don't just walk out and say, okay, I planted it, it's gone. You have to till it, you have to seed it, you have to feed it, you have to water it. So I think resiliency skills are things that we grow with. In fact, my definition of resiliency is not the definition that's in the dictionary, which is why 99.9% of the books that you see on resiliency are all about bouncing back, bouncing back, bouncing back. I do not believe that's adequate for the human system. You cannot go back. Once something occurs in our life, it's done, it's over. So our question then is, how do I cultivate skills that allow me to grow, that's an operative word, to grow through challenge or opportunity so that I end up wiser and in a better place than when I started out. And I, I'm big on the word opportunity because if you were presented with a great opportunity, that too is going to require a lot of energy, which is why I say ultimately resiliency is energy management. How is it that I'm crafting my life? Where is the energy going? What are the black holes that are in here? And how can I either regain maintain or figure out what's draining my energy resources. Yes. No, that's really helpful. And I love that talking about energy. Um, you know, we often hear, how do you get into your flow or, you know, like talking about not doing things that are energy sucks. Um, and so, yeah, Eileen, if you could tell us a little bit more about what are some insights that, uh, pharmacists and others can put into practice to start being able to develop some of these cultivation skills? Okay. Well, first, let me just say that everything that happens to us, Hillary, happens first in our heads. We talk to ourselves all the time. We just don't even know we're talking to ourselves. And the first thing that I, I believe is really important is we need to look at what are the words that we think of and therefore act from. And I am big that one of the most important words in our language is the word to choose. So every time you say, I have to do this, I have to do that. No, you do not have to. You are choosing to do it. Now, you might not like some of the other choices, but the reality is you could turn around and walk away. You might not want to do that, but the choice is yours. When you realize that the power resides within you, because burnout is the definition that Freudenberger gave us from back in the 70s who coined the term. It was to, to deplete one's resources by excessively striving to reach some unrealistic expectation imposed upon by yourself or society. So it's, it's stuff that we do often to ourselves. We want to blame it on our work, but I know people who can work just well and walk home and they're just fine. So first and foremost, substitute the word I choose to for I have to. I did not have to talk to you today, Hillary. I am choosing to take this time. And you did not have to do this podcast. I know that when you do this podcast, it brings you joy. You want to do this. That's a whole different mindset than feeling that you were dragged into something. The second thing that I think that we can all do 
is to look at where do we get stuck in this, what I think of as the black hole of negativity, where what we do is find out all of the things that are wrong. And let's face it, within the work that you do as pharmacists, there is so much that is out of your control. Everything from um, healthcare insurances that all of a sudden one day cover this and the next day they change the formulation and you got a, you got a, a patient or you've got a, a customer standing in front of you who just can't understand why in the world what, what was covered one day is not covered the next. Um, if they work within a retail environment, there's going to be restrictions that are based upon uh, labor unions at this part of it. So you have to say, of oh, what of this can I control? I can whine and complain about the stuff I can't control. So step back and say, where is it? Where is it that I have this place of control? And how do I shift? How do I shift that mindset and stop blaming it on everybody else and say, where is my point of power here? Where is it that I have control? And one of the fascinating things that I've read, and actually it was a uh, it was a neurosurgeon who said this, um, that there are great times in which he's exhausted, but he realizes what allows him to come back is that 20% of his day, he realizes what contribution he made to the patient in front of him. Didn't say 80%, didn't say 75%, didn't say 100%, he said 20% of the time. And that refuels me. So another thing I think you can look at is what is the what is the stuff that you do in the course of a day that refuels you? And it is that small thing. And also, I'd like to say it is the interaction not only with the patient or the customer who's in front of it, but the interaction with each other. One, one of the things that happens with technology is we become lonely. We become distanced from each other. And in that distance, loneliness is as serious to your health as it is if you were smoking a pack of cigarettes. So how do you individually reach out to the team that you have around you and say, hey, I'm really glad you're here today. How's the day going? You know, I understand your mom was sick. Is she feeling better? You know, that, they, that we exist with, to each other as human beings and not just cogs in a wheel. That can change the whole atmosphere within a culture. I love that because there's so many times that that people probably come into work and and they're not making those interpersonal connections. And you spend more of your time at work a lot of times than you do at home. And so you need to be developing those relationships and making people feel loved and, and feel like they matter. Oh, uh, that's so, you're, Hillary, you just said it right there. Let people know that they matter. The, the research that Daniel Pink did said, what are the things that the top three things that people want in their jobs? They want autonomy. They want mastery and they want meaning. Autonomy means let me do my job and don't hang over my shoulder. Mastery is help me grow in wisdom and in knowledge. Help me get better at what I what I want to do. And meaning is not only is it purposeful, but that I'm meaningful to you, that you know that I matter. When I'm with nurse managers in the next couple weeks, one of the things I'm going to say to them, because the theme that they're kicking off is resiliency, is how well... Do you actually create and acknowledge not only the nursing staff that you have around you? And believe it or not, you can walk on a hospital floor and they don't even say hello to each other. Mm -hmm. But it's it's also the custodial staff, Mm -hmm. the environmental staff. Um, it's, It's simple things that say we're in this together and together we're going to do some good work today. Right. And when we have a downtime, we're going to say, okay, how do we pull ourselves out of this? And notice the operative pronoun that I'm using is we, not you, 
not me, but we. Eileen, I love that because, you know, as I was growing up, my mom was always telling me the importance of, of <laughs> you choose your emotions. Um, and so I think that, that you bringing up the I choose and, you know, stopping the blame game is so important. Speaking of education, are you aware of the 2014 drug disposal of controlled substances ruling that regards safe disposal of unused medications? Well, we're lucky to have RX Destroyer sponsoring the Talk to Your Pharmacist podcast. RX Destroyer ready-to-use chemical drug disposal systems are safe, easy, and affordable products, which protect the environment and can save thousands in fines. To get more information on products, training, and medication waste, compliance, check out www.rxdestroyer.com slash talk to your pharmacist. And what about getting out of a lot of the negative self-talk? So sometimes you, you already said that we get in our heads and, you know, we have these, these thoughts like I'm, I'm totally helpless. You know, there's nothing that I can do or say that will do anything or, you know, a victim mentality where I've never done anything wrong and now this, or they're a villain and, and someone's out to kind of get you. How do you get out of that negative self-talk? Okay. Um, so the first thing I would suggest is that when we look at developing what Martin Seligman calls optimism, and I call it intelligent optimism, not being a silly, uh, Oh, trip the light, fantastic, and all I see is rainbows and butterflies and unicorns, you know, because life is tough. I mean, let's face it, right. life is tough. Right. So what, what intelligent optimism says to me is I step back and say, ask myself three questions. Whatever it says, is this personal? Whatever happened to me, is this person really out to get me? Did the system decide that today they're going to jump on Hillary today? Well, no, it's, 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 it's happened across the board when we look at reimbursement policies. So, no, they didn't do it to me. So it's not personal. Is it permanent? Well, right now it looks kind of permanent, but I have some flexibility here because there's some things that I could do. And then is it pervasive, meaning this one event is going to shadow my entire life? I am ruined forever. This takes a lot of courage to ask those questions. And sometimes I think, Hillary, it's helpful to have a colleague uh, who will ask those questions of us and say, OK, I just want you to ask these questions of me and let me let me just verbalize and help me see another way of responding to this. So the first thing is, number one, to realize what you're doing. Uh, and oftentimes it's helpful to actually write down what you're saying to yourself. And then step back and say, is this true? Is this permanent? Is it pervasive? Is it personal? Um, and then say, what, how do I turn that around? Let, let, let me give you an example. I was, um, let's take a horrible situation that is so negative we can't even imagine it. Um, and I saw this in Ireland in November when I addressed an international conference. And sitting out in the parking lot of this conference hall, this conference building, was a yellow, highly decorated with bumblebees, and it said Bumblelance. I said, what the <laughs> heck is that? And it turned out uh, this was a community project that um, I think it was Cisco 
had brought in for its attendees uh, to know about and to raise money for. It was a nonprofit children's ambulance service that had been created, a 5013C, had been created by a mother and father who lost not one, but two children, respectively at the age of five, from a genetic disease. And what they discovered was how horrible it was to have to transport a child over the roads in Ireland who needed to be intubated, who needed, that it was just terrible. And, and, and to call a regular ambulance, the children are scared. They created Bumbleance. So inside this ambulance is everything that is child-sized, that is colorful, that has videos, that has games, that is that is stuffed toys. There's things that make a child at least not as scared. So what that mom and dad did was to say, how can we take this absolutely horrible event and turn it around in some way so that no parent has to go through what we get went through. I think they have, I've lost count, I think they have like, I might be wrong, five or six mumbleances that operate in Ireland. And um, they're always looking to raise money for that. Um, and nurses volunteer to go on the mumbleance when they take the child to the respective hospital. But that to me is such a powerful way of saying you could have gotten in this horrible downward spiral. Mm -hmm. And the parents stepped back and said, how do we turn this around? Right. We still are suffering horrible loss. It doesn't change that. But out of it, could I find something positive? Right. Exactly. Uh, that's such a great story. And, and I know I've, I've seen other examples of, of how even, you know, suffering and loss and, and what do you do with that? And how do you, how do you flip that switch and, and make it positive for people going forward? So Eileen, um, another thing, let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, maybe seasons of life or, or how life happens in context. Share a little bit more about what you mean by that. Okay. Um, I have a, a very different model. Um, when people talk about balance, I say balance is baloney. It doesn't exist. So I want you, instead of thinking about balance, which if Hillary, if I, if I, if I were looking at you right now and ask you to show me with your hands, what balance looks like, you would hold it up to look like a pan scale, like the scale of justice. Mm -hmm. Well, life is never equal. It's just, so just throw that out. The word itself creates the wrong picture in our head. So the metaphor that I use is I want you to think of sailing, a sailboat, a one-person sailboat. And when you're in a one-person sailboat, you have one hand on the tiller, you have another hand on the sheet, and you've got your toes, you have a good head, head of wind in the sheet. Uh, you've got your toes hooked under the gunwale of the, the little sailboat so you don't fall out. So when the wind shifts, what do you have to do, Hillary? You adjust. That's right. You have to shift. You have to come about. You change your position. You don't lose the tiller. You don't lose the sheet, but you adjust. And I want you to think about this. Just as there are cycles of the tides and phases of the moon, so too are there cycles of our life. And if I understand this as a cycle, then I know no truer words were ever spoken than this too shall pass. So my first thought is when we look at our lives, our lives shift and there are cycles of our lives. 
And the notion then of developing resiliency is how can I consciously stay connected, i.e. spending time, that's all we have, 24 hours in a day, give my energy to things that given the current context of my life are important. So let me give you an example. So I always say there's five parts of all of our lives. There's the intellectual, that's the work that we do. There's the emotional part. Those are the people that are in our lives. Um, there is the physical, this whole physical body. How do we operate with that? There is the material. What do we put around us? Because you and I, everybody works for a material lifestyle. And then at the bottom of the little tiller is a rudder. And I think of that as the spiritual rudder. Well, when, when our life shifts for whatever reason, our amount of attention, time, energy, and some of those things will shift too. For example, when my sister and her husband were fighting his stage three lung cancer, yes, they did work, but it was not the way they had worked before. Their primary energy went into to working on how do we work through this horrific illness. Did they abandon their physical body, her physical body? No, Susan had to do some kind of exercise or she'd be crazy. Obviously, my brother-in-law was, was very focused on his physical part, but that also means who are you emotionally connected to? Maybe you can't spend as much time as people that you'd like to, but right now the most important emotional thing was their relationship and the family, those of us who are around and help them. Um, yes, there's things that happen materially and spiritually, oh my goodness, what kind of energy needs to go into that if, in fact, you realize that you are approaching what very well could be and ended up was the end of my brother-in-law's life. So my thought is that we learn to sail. We learn to navigate our lives consciously. What's going on for me right now? Who am I connected to? Where is my energy going? What is it that my intellectual my work is asking of me how well am I taking care of this physical body because this is the this is the engine that drives the locomotive I don't take care of this it's not going to serve me and uh, oftentimes I think part of developing resiliency is to realize that you need to take very good care of what energy you are putting into or depleting from our physical bodies does that make sense yes and 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 so kind of in that sense, talking about the physical body, you know, there's a lot of talk about self-care right now. I think um, it's such a big buzzword and uh, there's definitely ways and things that that we all can do to help our self-care. Um, but but yeah, just as you mentioned, it's all about mindset and and how we're we're choosing to be as well. But to take some really simple things about self-care, what are some things that you would recommend um, to our listeners, pharmacists, others out there? All right, now remember these are choice points. So you have to decide if I choose to do this, I might make alterations in other parts. Mm-hmm. So the first thing that, that there's really big thing is sleep. We are really sleep deprived. I think we're beating Japan out of being the most sleep deprived nation in the world. Now we know that we actually need at least seven to eight hours of sleep. I purposely design my life so that I go to bed at eight or eight thirty at night. I don't care. The phone is off. I'm not checking email before I go to bed. You create this womb, if you will, 
there's a pun in the word womb, <laughs> your bed womb, <laughs> mm-hmm. and this 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 internal WOMB that would hold you so that you gently allow yourself to begin to sleep. So one of them is what are, what are the sleep patterns that you have? The second thing that I think is really important is it is that notion of exercise. Um, and it's aerobic of any intensity. Um, it's muscle training. And, it, you know, sometimes one of the best things we can do for ourselves and we just, okay, I've had enough, is to walk outside and breathe the air to go someplace where it's green. I don't care whether it's the park, whether it's this grass that's growing up on the sidewalk. Take a couple of slow breaths and then come back into that place. So there's sleep, there's that kind of exercise. Diet, oh my goodness, diet is so important. I look at the people who are drinking all of this sugar stuff and you know, you know, in the medical field, that's some of the worst stuff that you can do for you. Um, huge amounts of caffeine. Uh, but those are all choice points. So you have to say, where is it that I'm going to start to claim my life back, to develop these resiliency skills that will allow me to go through? What are other ways of me showing up? And I'll tell you the way I, I start my day. Um, and it's very deliberate. And I do get up early, which is why I go to bed at 8 or 8.30. I do 20 minutes of meditation every morning. And all that means is that I'm sitting, deep breathing, and I'm quiet. I do have a piece of spiritual reading that I do. But it's really, instead of just jumping out of bed and just scrambling, I I quiet, and what is my intention for the day? What do I, what do I want to accomplish in this day? Maybe it's not accomplished, but how do I want to show up? Maybe the way I want to show up right now with all this hatred and meanness that we see that is going around our country, maybe the way I want to show up is how can I be kind today? And it's interesting what happens when you go out and be kind or offer to do something, particularly for a stranger, what that does to your level of energy. Mm-hmm. And then I, I exercise. I either run um, or I go to the gym. And then I come back and I do 20 minutes of yoga and then I'm ready to start. So I have my my head, my heart, my spirit is kind of ready. So now I can say, okay, what's what's here in front of me for the day? Just like I knew that here in front of me for the day was our conversation. And I could get ready for that. Absolutely. And and you've built all of those things in as as habits and and we hear all the time really successful people are really people who seem to be stable and emotionally healthy have those morning habits or morning routines and thanks for sharing a little bit more about yours and just some some simple ways that people can can take away and make choices uh, so that they can uh, live more resilient and and energy filled lives. So Hillary, let me mention one other thing. You don't have to do this all at once. Yes. <laughs> goals. I mean, maybe what you want to do is before I jump out of bed, I will take five minutes. Just give yourself five minutes. Maybe if exercise isn't my thing, I will do five minutes of walking around the block. I will take my dog out. I'll, you know, whatever it is. Um, so start small, you know, when I started this, which really was about 
it really was about 30 years ago because I didn't do any kind of exercise. So I decided that every time I did any kind of physical movement, but it had to be intentional. It's not just walk down the hall that I would give myself one of those kids stickers in my daytime. And I got to tell you, it was so much fun to go out and buy these stupid little stickers. And when I would do some kind of exercise, I would put it in my little daytimer. And I got to tell you, at the end of the month, you look down and you maybe have half a dozen little stickers staring up at you. You go, well, by gum, that was good. Mm -hmm. I did a good job there. So um, start small and find ways to reward yourself when you do that. For me, it was as simple as a kid's sticker. Yeah, I love it. Eileen, it has been such a pleasure getting to talk with you. And is there any other just kind of last pieces of advice that you would like to share with our listeners? Well, wow, that's such a, oh, there's so much. <laughs> and I have to say, I teach what I need to learn. Some days I'm good at this, Hillary, and some days I stink. And I think that when we stink, we have to say, oh, well, there I went again. Let me, let me come back and regroup. I can get in the place of negativity. Um, I can go off the diet thing. We're not perfect. Life, life is in fact a journey. But if I work it wisely, remember, it's not the end of the journey that matters. It's the journey itself. Well, Eileen, it was such a pleasure to have you as a guest on the Talk to Your Pharmacist podcast. Thank you, Hillary. And uh, we want to talk again. Well, let's just do it. <laughs> Wonderful. And if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out the show notes at www.pharmacyadvisory.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of Talk to Your Pharmacist, produced by the Pharmacy Advisory Group. If you liked this episode, let us know by subscribing to the podcast, rating, and reviewing it. Share it with friends. And if you want to be a guest or know a pharmacist leader who has a great story to tell, connect with me, Hillary Blackburn, on LinkedIn and check out our Facebook page, Pharmacy Advisory Group, for updates on new podcasts. Thanks for listening.